0: The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Rogers News.
1: A surprise HSBC breakup request and Big Oil's stingy strategy. Welcome back to The Views Room. I'm your co-host, Amy Donlan, a columnist at Breaking Views coming to you from Canary Wharf. HSBC is often viewed as the oil tanker of global banking. Its hefty balance sheet allows it to reach customers across the globe, but growth avenues are limited. Chinese insurer Ping An has spotted an opportunity for the $129 billion lender. It reckons HSBC chairman Mark Tucker can unlock value by splitting off the bank's Asian operations. But this plan may create more problems than it solves. Meanwhile, energy prices are soaring and consumers are feeling the squeeze. This may seem like a good time for big oil to ramp up production to ease pressures on Joe Public. However, these giants are holding back and may be preparing for the day when the price of crude falls. This is one way to keep their investor base sweet. First up, Peter Tal Larson chats to Jennifer Hughes in Hong Kong about why breaking up HSBC may be hard to do. Next, I chat to Rob Siren in New York about how oil majors ExxonMobil and Chevron risk angering the cash-strapped public by failing to open the oil taps. Shareholder activism with a twist
0: at HSBC. That's the story that broke kind of over the weekend um, and uh, and Breaking View has been looking at. I'm Peter Thalarson, based in London, and I'm joined by... Jen Hughes, our HSBC watcher from Hong Kong. Hi, Jen. Hi, Peter. So, um, great to have you back. Um, we've been looking at this for a couple of days now. Um, basically, what we found out over the weekend is that Ping An, the, the big Chinese insurance company, which is also the largest shareholder in HSBC with a with an 8% stake, um, is pushing HSBC to split off its Asian operations from the rest of the bank uh, as a way of, 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 we guess, sort of unlocking value and sort of dealing with some of the, the challenges that HSBC faces. Tell me just a bit about how this came about. Well, there was talk sort of mounting about a week ago
2: that there was an activist investor who was going to take a tilt at HSBC now, that's uncommon in that we don't get many activists who go for banks because they don't normally get anywhere. But there's such a big difference between an activist who could just hold a small stake
0: and the bank's biggest shareholder that have kind of gone from night to day on this one. Yeah. And obviously, HSBC, as we know, has been, has been struggling a bit in terms of its performance. Um, it has this big global network. Uh, the results have been a bit disappointing. And there is this sort of existential question that hangs over HSBC, which is, in a world that that's becoming sort of multipolar or possibly even bipolar, uh, where, where antagon- relations between the US and China are becoming more antagonistic, can you be a bank that has one foot in, in, in Hong Kong and, and China and Asia in general and at the same time also have be headquartered in the UK and have operations in the US?
2: Well, the biggest point, I think, the biggest sticking point for Ping An in all of this is less so much the politics of the two though those are difficult enough as we know but also just the different regulatory regimes i mean hong kong shareholders in hspc of whom there are a lot were distraught just a couple of years back when the early days of the pandemic the bank of england well the uk authorities basically cancelled the dividend on hspc it wouldn't let it pay out money Mm. now obviously for ping an as an insurer with a whacking great stake That was a real hit to its investment performance. And this idea that this is the Asian bank where most of the money is made in Asia from operations Mm. in the region. And then someone in London can tell you you can't have your dividend. That, I think, is the real sore point here, as well as the geopolitics.
0: Yeah. So, okay. so, So their proposed solution seems to be something like well, we want you to kind of do an IPO or a spin off or something of the Asian business. So, So create a sort of Hong Kong-based Asia HSBC, which is separately listed, uh, and leave behind the sort of UK-headquartered bank, which has UK and Europe and the US and Mexico and the Middle East and things like that. Would that create any value? Well, it's not clear at this
2: point because we don't have any detailed numbers from Ping An, and HSBC doesn't seem to feel it's in a position where it needs to produce them. I mean, the bank is always saying that its East-West network has value, that its clients in Europe generate a lot of its revenues in Asia. But if you look at its returns, if you look at its market valuation, then it's not producing the numbers to justify that claim fully, nor is the market valuing it as such. So there's always been some talk about a spin-off or the potential for a split or a spin-off of some sort. But it's very hard when we don't know quite what they want to do with
0: it. Yeah, I mean, I think we we sort of had a we, we we wrote a piece over the weekend which which sort of played around with these numbers and you can superficially you can sort of come up with a a model that says well the HSBC Asia business produces two thirds of its 19 billion dollars of pre tax profit uh, if you knock off tax and you and you put that on a on the same multiple as DBS in Singapore which is the sort of the the most prime example of a regional Asian bank that's doing really well you can come up with a number that says actually the Asian bit of HSBC is worth the same as the whole of HSBC is valued at now, which suggests there is some value. But then, as you say, you, you know, you would potentially lose those cross-border revenues, those flows that go from Asia to Europe and the U.S. or back from the U.S. And, and Europe back to Asia. So it's not entirely clear that it would create value. The question, I suppose, though, for, for HSBC is, you know, if this was a normal shareholder, an activist shareholder, you would presumably go on the attack and say, well, this doesn't make any sense. But it's a bit harder to do that with your largest shareholder, particularly when your largest shareholder is a Chinese insurance company.
2: Uh, Yes, in your most strategically important market, i.e. the mainland. Uh, Yes, it's much harder. Um, The way Ping An has gone about this and now the name is out there, their name is attached to this. I guess what comes next is we'll see if other shareholders want to say more, want to join the push, want to make their own comments or suggestions on what could happen next. The whole China element is interesting on top of this. We don't know that there's any politics involved. Uh, It's very easy to think that always in China. But that's a fascinating extra twist in all of this and makes it, as you say, much harder for HSBC. They're going to have to be very careful how they handle all commentary around this.
0: Yeah, indeed. And I guess when your larger shareholder has made it clear that they're unhappy, that that's not a sustainable situation. So um, I guess we will watch this space. Jen, very good to talk to you. And uh, I'm sure we'll come back to this uh, in the coming weeks and months.
3: Oil
1: majors are doing little to help the little guy. My colleague Rob Searin wrote a piece this week about why ExxonMobil and Chevron are failing to up production just as prices rocket. So, Rob, welcome back great to it's have you on the podcast so tell us about this story and what might be the kind of strategic thinking that's going on with these oil majors because you would think that you know, given it's so expensive now to fill up your car with with gasoline or petrol however you you refer to it this would be a way for for them to make lots of money just as, as prices are very high
3: so these companies are making a lot of profit right now last week chevron nexon both reported chevron their profit quadrupled Um, Exxon, their profit more doubled even after taking a big write down for the Russian operations. But the interesting thing is their production is flat. In other words, they didn't produce any more oil basically than they did a year ago. And the other interesting thing is that they're not spending that much more. They're increasing CapEx a bit, but the, the capital expenditure is still a lot less than it was in 2019 when oil prices were a lot lower. And why is that? There are a couple of reasons. One of the big reasons is that oil prices in what's called backwardation. In other words, current prices today, so price of oil today is about $106 based on West Texas Intermediate. But forward prices, if you wanna buy a barrel of oil uh, in May uh, of 2023, it's only about $87. So the market's anticipating the price of oil is gonna go down. So these companies are looking at that and saying, well, if the price of oil is gonna go down, Why should I go out and build this gigantic production facility and just in time for the price of oil to go down?
1: And so if you're a shareholder in one of these companies, this would this would probably make you quite happy, right? Because, as you say, their profits are up and they're sort of protecting against, you know, having too much supply as prices fall.
3: Yeah. And the other thing is that these companies have been, you know, over the past decade, have been just horrible investments, almost all of them. And that's because they spent far too much money exploring for oil, especially with shale had been bombed. It just been awful investment for years. But it is they poured money into it. Price of oil kept on, you know, wasn't going up and they were losing lots of money. Now prices are high and the companies are being a bit restrained and saying, well, you know, we're not going to invest much more. And what does that mean? It means the profits are high today. And as you say, it prevents a glut of oil happening. And it, it means that future profits should be high. And partly that's because investors. Um, investors have restrained oil companies. If you look at something like Exxon, they actually uh, had a proxy fight last year, and three of the directors were kicked off. And that's because the comp- investors were just um, a little tired of the company just spending so much and increasing the capital investiture and not reaping profit.
1: And So this is quite an interesting story, I think, that actually goes beyond the US as well, because if you look at even what's going on in Italy at the moment, they've announced this windfall tax and there's a debate in the UK as to whether uh, the government should impose, you know, basically a tax on the oil majors because they are making so much money and sort of not out of their own decision making. They're making money because there is obviously this Russian invasion of Ukraine and that has really driven up prices. Is there any kind of talk of that in the US, of kind of government pressure saying, uh, you know, if you obviously, if you up production, then that will bring down prices and that will obviously be good for the man on the street?
3: There has been, I mean, Biden has come out and said the oil companies, you know, should do more. The leader of the US Senate, Chuck Schumer, said that the companies were just spending too much money, rewarding shareholders with buybacks, and they weren't doing things like lowering the price of oil or upping investment. The other interesting thing is that there are increasing projects in some areas, like, um, for instance, in Permian, that's the big, the biggest shale field in the U.S., and both Chevron and Exxon are increasing their production there. And if you step back, you realize why they're doing it, because uh, shale, the thing with shale is that you put the money in and the oil starts flowing very, very quickly, and they know they can make money at shale easily so I remember I said uh, West Texas Intermediate next year is about $87. That's the market's estimate. They can make a lot of money on shale at $87. Okay. So they're looking at that and saying, well, sure, let's let's put money into that. But they're also saying, you know, they could be doing these gigantic projects like you know they used to do off the coast of Africa or Australia, but those projects wouldn't start producing for years and years down the line. So oil companies are saying, well, let's let's invest money in the in the in the fields that can produce production very, very quickly, like shale, and not do these mega projects where we don't know what's going to happen in 10 years. And that's probably smart, because if you think about it, you know, production is probably, I mean, demand for oil worldwide is probably close to peak, if not already peak. And why would you want to bring on gigantic projects if demand is going to be falling over the next few years?
1: So if you're thinking about these companies, and you obviously said that before they were kind of a, a disastrous investment, Do these decisions, the shale and the kind of, you know, limiting oil production, does that change their fortunes for kind of the longer term, do you think?
3: Maybe. Depends on a couple of things. Can they keep on being restrained? It's easy to say, yeah, sure, I'm going to keep on just minting profit. I'm not going to invest more and make and try to get more profit in the future. Oil sector for decades has had the, the, the perception has been that they just they never want to miss an opportunity they always overinvest. and there's good reason for that. and I would be surprised if at some point if this if prices don't stay this high, if they don't tra- chase it again. The other problem is that like I said, demand is already probably peaked. you know if electric vehicles start spreading faster than expected, oil prices could fall. It doesn't even matter even if they keep restraining investment today, there still could be excess oil in the future how quickly the the lowering of demand occurs we don't know the other thing is that because prices are relatively high today people are more incentivized to to you know cut back on their use of oil um you know like i'm going i'm buying a car i'm i'm definitely not going to buy a conventional car anymore um, and certainly not if oil is uh, you know if i go and I have to spend so much money to fill up my tank
1: oh, so they might be victims of their own plan <laughs>
3: That's um... right.
1: Well, listen, Rob, so great to talk to you. Uh, Thanks very much for this. And uh, yeah, we'll keep following the story. Thanks, Amy. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast was produced by Katrina Hamlin in Hong Kong. Subscribe to The Views Room and our sister podcast, The Exchange, on a cast, megaphone, or wherever you like to listen. Check out our latest views on these stories and many others at BreakingViews.com and on Twitter, where our handle is at BreakingViews.